Thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church. I am excited because today we are starting a brand new series called Reclaiming Revival. If you are new to the church, you probably have very few cultural references to revival. If you grew up in the church, you either love revival or have a shaky relationship with revival. And that's why we're titling this Reclaiming Revival, trying to strip it off of the cultural ideas attached to it and dive back into the idea of God speaking life and breathing life into areas that are dead. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge one book in particular. In preparing this series and every series, there are many books and articles that have gone into it, but I want to acknowledge in particular, Longing for Revival by James Chung and Ryan Pfeiffer, because it has been instrumental in building a lot of the outline and ideas in this series. Otherwise, I would basically be performing plagiarism if I didn't give them credit. But coming into this, I want to talk about revival itself and why there is a need for it. In the last five years, I've read about a dozen clickbaity articles and titles on the internet about the church in decline or the death of the American church. Why millennials are walking away from the church. That nuns have become the largest religious group. The death of American Christianity. Deconstruction is popular and there are articles and podcasts of people talking about it Famous podcasters, Rhett and Link from My Mythical Morning, even have a four-episode arc on their podcast about their own deconstruction of faith. And as we talk about life into death and some of the death in the American church, I also want to acknowledge that there are areas of the global church where they are thriving and there is life and energy in the black American church, in the Latin American church, the African church, the South Pacific church. There are legit revivals going on right now. But I want to speak into our context because that's the context and what I pastor and how we can seek revival in our churches. Erica Anderson even writes a very clickbaity title, Thank God the American Church is Dying. And it's actually not a negative piece. It's a beautiful, encouraging piece about the death of maybe some of the structures of church we've had, but the rapid growth of house churches and organic church growth itself. One article in particular that gained a lot of fame in the Wall Street Journal by Erica Anderson was, thank God for the death of the American church. And while that title is provocative, it's actually a wonderful, encouraging piece about the death of some of the structures of the American church, but the rapid growth of house churches and church plants and satellite churches, and that there is a movement of revival inside of the American church. At the heart of of her peace is that many American churches have stopped living and are dying in their convictions and dying in their passion. As Leonard Ravenhill once said, the tragedy is that we have too many dead men in the pulpits giving out too many dead sermons to too many dead people. Into the dying church, we need to see attractive, life-giving revival. There are three basic strategies that we see not really working in the church anymore. There are three unattractive faith models. I've been familiar with all of them. I maybe even have pastored some of them and pushed some of these ideas. The first is called the frozen chosen. We don't need to be attractive. We are historic. 
And we have done church the same way for 500 years that we will do for 500 years. It's roughly the same age as our organist. We're not gonna change and it's how we've always been. There's no emotion. There's no necessity for attractiveness. It is beautiful theology and beautiful tradition with no passion. The second is happy clappy. This is another older style of church, but you can find it all over. The services are wild and the prayer moments are wild and everybody's clapping and dancing and singing. They've got energy and passion and dancing and sometimes flags and sometimes horns blowing as well. You come to the altar every single night of every week and you get saved every single night of every week of your entire life. There is a ton of passion, but often no relevance and often sometimes missing the beautiful theology. And then last is the most modern, smoke and lasers. And that is where church is very cool. We're cool, the pastor is sexy, and you can drink coffee during church. Incredibly relevant, but oftentimes missing depth of conviction. While each of these three traditions has its benefits and its beauties, in their worst versions, it's either tradition or passion or relevancy that will save us from the encroaching tide of death and brokenness. And the goal is no longer to take this world back and to believe in hope, but merely to survive until one day Jesus returns. It is into this that we need a revived church. What people want and what we need to see and breathe is a revived church or more specifically revived Christians. People who are fully alive. People who are fully loving and compassionate. People who have a deep conviction over the power of their God. And people who can tell you why they are so full of joy. What we need are people re-inspired and reinvigorated and revived and passionate about what Jesus has done and is doing and still wants to do in this world. These are people who regularly show evidence of continually being in the presence of Jesus and can point to their church community as the place where their belief and trust in Jesus is revived over and over again. As Mark Sayers says, renewal is the process that God keeps taking us on, that he's written into the fabric of the cosmos because humans must always choose to choose God again. Or as Jesus of Nazareth says in John chapter 1, verse 39, come and you will see. Into any of these three traditions, if there is a growing revival, a growing genuine encounter with Jesus, a genuine growing encounter with the heart of God and what breaks his, we see new life and revival bubbling out. And I'll be honest with you, and a confession, the term revival itself comes with a lot of baggage. For me, it comes with a lot of baggage. Full disclosure, I went through a deep period of my life as an adult, as a pastor, resenting the term revival. I've served under and alongside very good women and men who earnestly believed in Jesus and used the term revival all the time. 
and revival was the solution to every single problem we had. I've been in dying ministries where revival was the cure-all for every situation that we had. We didn't need to be relevant. We didn't need to do more reading. We didn't need to build relationships in the community because if God just showed up, none of that would matter. And revival was a cure-all. I once prayed every morning at 7 a.m. for over an hour every day for four months on my campus. And we would pray for God to bring new people. And I remember so many times praying cold on the floor of an empty classroom on my college campus thinking, maybe we should give out some flyers. Maybe we should invite some people or create a Facebook group. Some of us may grow up in that tradition where revival was just the solution to everything and everything was called revival. It was also a goal when I was a teenager of almost every student camp that I would be a part of, seek revival in your school, on your campus, in your neighborhoods. Revival, revival, you will lead and spark a movement of God. Honestly, at times, it felt pretty manipulative. And I know when we talk about revivals, some of you may picture this scene right here. A tent revival, probably in black and white. Even if you were there in person today, you would see it in black and white. Everybody wearing suits, pretty sweaty. Outside, this is the idea of revival. If you've seen True Detective, revival experience like that. Or maybe you think of a revival like this. And here it's just people laying out on the floor, emotion everywhere. Maybe people are really crying or really sweating, but Either way, there's salty water everywhere and people are pushing and praying and there's a million hands on people and maybe that's your idea of revival. Or perhaps it's this and it's a minister really passionately in somebody's face really going for it or shoving them over. I used this image as the last one because if you don't know, that's Tyler Perry praying and pushing over T.D. Jakes. And if you're not involved in church enough, it's incredible. It's a black filmmaker pushing over one of the fam most famous preachers of the last 20 years, and it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. But you may have one of these three images or maybe all three together in your mind, and when you think of revival, it's just chaotic prayer services, tons of emotionality, and it's just wild and boundless. The fact is, the term revival has been used so many times in so many different ways that for many of us, it's lost all meaning altogether. And maybe we've even given up on the idea. For me, for years, I did. I gave up on the idea. What I embraced instead was an idea of, why can't we just be faithful? Why can't I just have a faithful, obedient life following God? Why do I need revival and the emotionality and everything that comes along with it? This is where I landed. Why can't I just live a faithful life and teach people to live a faithful life? The author of Hebrews seemed to believe this and laid out this idea in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. They write, All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. So we need to be faithful and deeply faithful, but sometimes when we talk about being faithful, what we really mean is hang in there because nothing's going to change. Survive this because 
don't expect any of this to ever move or change. Just hold on and put your head down. In being faithful, times we have lost the ability to hope. A belief in a God who can and wants to and will affect this world, many of us in practicality, if we're being honest with ourselves, have stopped hoping that our God would actually intervene and participate in this world. And we've settled for the fact that Jesus Christ resurrected 2,000 years ago and one day, someday in the future, he'll resurrect all of us and in between, we've stopped believing he cares to intervene at all. In the movie Shawshank Redemption, a man is falsely accused and convicted and thrown in prison for life sentence. And he constantly keeps pushing back against the establishment. And at one moment, in an act of rebellion, he breaks into the warden's office, locks himself in, and plays Mozart throughout the PA system of the whole prison. When they finally get him, they take him and they throw him in solitary confinement for two weeks. When he comes out, he's talking to his best friend in the prison, Red, And he says to him, easiest time I've ever served because Mozart was playing in my head the whole time and it gave me hope. Red recoils and responds with this quote. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You better get used to that idea. That quote from Shawshank Redemption, or maybe from your jaded Christian friend or yourself in your own moments of doubt. Being a person of hope is considered oftentimes naive. And the mature, wise person is the jaded one who is simply just faithful. I'll guard my heart from the pain of disappointment. Disappointment in Christian relationships, disappointment in the pastor, disappointment in evangelicalism or Christianity in general. I'll just put my head down. It's easier to faithfully show up and expect nothing to happen. I'll be faithful, but I'll give up hope. But we do quietly hope somewhere deep inside of our hearts If you hope that there will one day be an America with racial reconciliation and justice is done for those who have been oppressed and hurt, if you still desire to see all of your family and your deepest, closest friends come to know the love of Jesus Christ, if there's a part of you longing for a day when there will be no longer any starving children or infants eliminated in the womb, you are holding out hope. But are we just believing in fantasies? Is this just childish, misplaced hope? Maturity seems to tell us to lower our expectations or to let go of our hopes. Don't dream for something better in case it doesn't happen. Why have your heart trampled over and over again? The Bible understands this and tells us a powerful story of holding back from hope. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 37, it tells us the story of a rich woman who would entertain a man of God, a prophet, in her time. And she would house him and feed him. And she would take care of him so much that one day he came to her and he said, you have taken care of me for years. As you know, I'm a man of God and I have influence as well. Is there anything I can do for you? Is there any way I can help you? He finds out she can't have children. 
And so he responds and says, I can pray and perform a miracle so that you can have children. And she responds with these words. No, my Lord, she cried. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. She responds, I can't, I can't take it. Don't, don't tease me because my heart can't handle that. But he responds and sure enough, within a year, she has a child. That child grows up and when he's still at a young age, he feels sick working out in the fields. His head hurts. He comes in and he literally dies in the arms of his mother. Now upset, she saddles a donkey and she rides to find this man of God. She travels long and hard to meet him and talking to him with both anger and despair in her voice, she says, did I ask you for a son, Lord? And didn't I say, don't deceive me and get my hopes up? Many of us can relate to this and this situation. Maybe we've believed in a church and, and there wasn't the integrity or love that we thought there would be. Or we've been in a movement where there were big dreams and promises given that never really materialized. Or we've been praying to God for something that he just hasn't responded in the way we want him to. Biblical wisdom says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. God understands and the Bible lays clear the struggle of us. Hope that is not realized can feel crushing on our heart, demoralizing. For this woman, the hope being lost is just too much to bear. When we talk about, and I've been here, just being faithful, I wonder if we're settling for faith without hope. And I'm going to be faithful, but I'm not going to trust for the good things that God has promised. And hope without faith is foolishness. Just hoping without really believing or knowing who God is, is foolish. But faith without hope is fatalism. I don't believe it's going to get better. I don't believe it's going to be great, but I'm, I'm going to believe in Jesus and I'm going to put my head down and just I know that this is going to be miserable. It's like all of my hyper-reformed friends. God is good and totally powerful and the work of the cross is the greatest beauty and mystery in the world and following Jesus, I believe my life's gonna be pretty ho-hum. And God is beautiful and wonderful, but my life is pretty miserable. It's fatalism. I trust God, but I don't trust that he has wonderful things planned for us. Revival is not the empty hope that I was taught at times it was, or maybe you were taught that it was, where God will fix everything for us and we don't have to do anything. I don't have to use my head, my heart, or my body. I just have to pray and God will do it for me. But revival is also not the fatalism of letting go of our trust that God will do good things. Revival is the restoring of hope into our Christian lives, living with purpose again, living and expecting good works in our lives again. Revival is the life of God breathed back into dead and dying people, communities and institutions. It's life restored to what is dead and dying. 
It's not the empty belief that God will do it for us, but the revival understanding that God will do it through us and in us. Revival is not the empty belief that God will do it for us, but the empowered understanding that the resurrected Jesus wants to do it through us and in us. So why revival? Why even try to reclaim it? Why preach about it? Why? Three reasons. Number one, it's biblical. All throughout the biblical text. One example, Psalm 85 verse 6. Won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? We see this all throughout the Hebrew people trusting in God and asking him to revive them and give them new life again. But the Bible is full of women and men seeking God to revive them. The first chapter of the Bible is about God breathing life into dead earth and clay and creating humanity. The final chapter is about God returning and breathing life back into broken cities, systems, earths, and principalities and bringing life back into it again. And at the very center of the story is the life of Jesus Christ repeatedly breathing life into what is dead, healing the broken, giving hope to the hopeless, and then dying on the cross so that all that is dead and dying could have new life through him. Take the tense and the sweat away from the understanding of revival. And revival is at the heart of the Bible is dead things coming back to life through the presence of God. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but there is a desire in me to see dead relationships, to see dead bodies, to see dead promises, to see dead systems brought back to life again by the power of God. Secondly, it's historic. From Acts chapter 2 to the Franciscans to the Moravians to the Pentecostals and the Wesleys and the mid-20th century movements in South Korea and in Africa to house churches today in China, revivals happen historically when God's people are desperate enough to seek him. In seeking a revival in our hearts and minds, we join in the history of people from all denominations and all nations and ethnicities and streams of life who responded to the brokenness and the death of our world by saying, God, we need you to bring life again and seeking his revival and resurrection power. As a little aside, if you want to take this extra, read about Duncan Campbell and the Scottish revival in the Hebrides of the late 19th century if you want a little historical inspiration about revival. So it's biblical, it's historic, and third and final, it can be strategic. Jonathan Edwards, famous American preacher and revivalist, said, Every major advance of the kingdom of God on earth is signaled and brought about by a general outpour of the Holy Spirit. You can read that as presence of God. John Tyson says, A revival is like going from a faucet to a fire hose. And where God does a work in a week that would normally take the church a year, or God does in a church in a year that would take a generation, It's a group of people coming together and seeking a fresh outpouring of God and his presence responding by pouring out new life. Movements like the Franciscans, 
the Wesleyans, and even the Assemblies of God, the denomination and movement that I am a part of, all of these were begun by revivals, by people coming together in desperation, has started movements of millions of people throughout the world. And I'll tell you, as we began, revival is happening. It's happening in Latin America, it's happening in Africa, it's happening in China and in South Korea. And I, for one, do not want to be on the outside looking in at revival. I don't want to be sitting and saying, I have faith and I'm keeping my head down just to get through this life. While there are people around this globe seeking God for their people, seeking God for their communities, seeking God to move and heal in this world as well as the next. When something is revived, it comes back to life. Many churches in the U.S. are dying. Many of us as followers of Christ, if we're honest, our faith and hope is dying. If we've lived through 2020, there are a lot of things to be disappointed in and to just say, I'm going to put my head down and try to survive. We need a refreshed, renewed, rekindled belief in the hope of the goodness of our God and the hope that Jesus Christ didn't stop at the resurrection and start again when he returned, but that he is working right now to restore his kingdom to this earth. And so, how do we seek revival? How do we do it? I want to just give you an encouragement and, and just speak to you plainly. I'm not going to just dive into a, a crazy revival and start screaming and preaching. That's not our approach in this. I don't believe revival can be manufactured or manipulated. I believe revival is born out of desperation, that revival moves towards the care of God's people, and that revival is surrounded by the idea of love. We are going to define revival, and I'm going to spend next week's message defining what we see as revival for this series and for our church community, revival as a season of breakthroughs in word, deed, and power that ushers in a new normal of kingdom experience and fruitfulness. That revival works in words, in the preaching and teaching and good theology and a passionate love for Jesus, in deeds, caring for the poor and being involved for the homeless and the hurting and caring for them, and then in power, in our prayer and belief that God is active and moving through us demonstratively. We will then talk about grievous sacred moments, moments that break God's heart and that break ours, and a dissatisfaction of the way the world is, that people are dying, that children can't eat, that people are hurting and broken, a dissatisfaction with the way the world is in order to call upon God to respond and bring new life. Next, we'll then talk about it starting small, so small that it just starts with me and God reviving my life? And what does it look like personally to be seeking God for renewal and holiness and passion in my own life? I'm not going to reach out and try to start a crowd and recruit a bunch of people until God has done a deep and long-lasting work in my heart and my life. And then finally, we'll ask and we'll dream and we'll pray about what it looks like when God's people gather together with this grievous conviction, with a pursuit of renewal in their life, and when we join together to see revival in our churches, our communities, our institutions, 
and the world. When we talk about revival, I'm not talking about a certain style of church, but I'm talking about hoping in the presence of God again and trusting that Jesus Christ is still living and active and that his spirit lives in us and that he truly meant for us to pray and to live, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. Lastly, as we start this series, there's going to be a lot of it where I'm also going to be challenging you and equipping you to be living this out yourself and to be exploring this in your own life. I'm not just going to preach at you. I'm going to invite you to invite God to do this work in you. And so as we close today, I'm going to invite you just to participate in a prayer exercise and invite God to fill you with hope again, to revive and resuscitate you, to dream about what God could and will do in you. I am from New Jersey. I grew up in the church. And so I get being jaded. I get it. I am a master of jaded life and living and expectations. Yeah, but it's not going to work out. Okay, yeah, but really behind the scenes, it's not. Well, why don't they explain? That's me. I get that. But into this, we are going to ask the Holy Spirit, to strip down out of us the jaded nature of how we see the world. Another way of saying it, our hard heart to the world around us. But trusting God to break our hearts for what breaks his and to honestly and earnestly trust him to do a great work in our life and in our world. If you'll just meditate with me right now and invite God to soften your heart in this moment. God, will you soften my heart to believe again? Soften my heart to hope again? I'm like the wealthy woman who lost a son and said, I, I, I wish I had never hoped in the first place. But in this moment, invite God to refill you with hope and to take the risk of caring and take the risk of hoping. As God softens our hearts, let's then turn the page and begin a prayer of God, fill me with hopeful expectation for what you can and will do through my life. And invite God to fill you with a dream, a vision, a calling, a hope, however big or small it may be, but invite him to fill you with hope in this moment. Take a minute and say, God, fill me with hope and a dream and an expectation in your goodness and power. Finally, I want to give an opportunity in this. If you don't know Jesus or wouldn't consider yourself a follower of God, I want to give you a chance to start that journey today to take a step of trust and faith in Jesus. And you may hear all of this about reviving. I don't even know God. I want to give you a chance just to start that today. If you'll pray this prayer with me, wherever you are, if you are a believer, recommit with me today. That Jesus, I believe that you are God and you are good and you are loving and gracious and generous and capable in this world and in my life. I believe that you lived on this earth as God and man. 
I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, my shame, and death. You were buried in the ground, and on the third day, you rose from the grave to bring life eternal and life now. You gave your life for me. Today, I commit my life to follow you and to live in the fullness of what that means, to seek you to revive and resurrect and resuscitate my life. If that was the first time you prayed that today, that prayer, I wanna invite you just to click one of the links around me. We would love to know that, celebrate that, and encourage you in your journey with Jesus. I am so excited to walk this five-week series through revival with you, Reclaiming Revival. Thank you for joining me for this teaching.